reading at verse 7 and continuing to verse 13. So Revelation, after Jude, before the maps, starting at verse 7 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add a blessing to his word. Thank you, Steve. Good morning. <clears throat> it's such a joy to be able to open up the Word with you. I enjoyed and have enjoyed immensely what we're going through in the book of Revelation. I'm sure that you're there at the moment as Jordan read it for us. But please turn there if you're not, because we're up to the sixth letter or sixth church or six letters that uh, out of the seven that have been written to the churches of Asia Minor. So let's just do a quick recap, not a, not a great one, just a quick one. We've seen the message to the church of Ephesus, and that was at the beginning of chapter 2. The Lord described himself in chapter 2 verse 1 as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, and that was to the Ephesian church. Now do you remember where that description came from? I hope you do. I know it was a long time ago, but it comes from Revelation chapter 1, 12 to 17. This is the, the description that, the, uh, that John gives as he has fallen dead or like dead in front of our Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And for the first five churches, we've seen the description of the one who is writing as a part of that description to the... Uh, church at Smyrna, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this to the church at Pergamum in verse 12, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword, says this. The fourth letter we looked at was to the church of Thyatira in verse 18, the son of God who has eyes like a flame and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. The last letter we looked at 
verse to the church at Sardis in verse 1 of chapter 3, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. And we looked at the character of the Lord Jesus Christ through that description that John has given us in chapter 1. And this leads us this morning to the letter at Philadelphia, or the letter to Philadelphia. You see, the description of our Lord here in chapter 3, verse 7, is unique. It's not drawn from the earlier vision of John's. And we're going to see that it actually has a distinctly Old Testament feel about this description of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll bring that out in a minute for you. But let's have a look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Look at the description that the Lord gives of himself. Verse 7, and to the angel, or the messenger as we've discussed, of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. The Lord has described himself as holy and true and having the key of David. Now we've all heard the term holy, he who is holy, certainly a reference to Christ's uh, character of his absolute holiness. He's completely separated from sin. His character is absolutely unblemished, absolutely flawless. In fact, if you really look into this, this is really Jesus declaring that he is God which of course we know he is. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, just uh, flick over a a page. This is uh, some of the description that Jeff was mentioning when we come into into the throne room of God. I can't wait either, Jeff. It's uh, an exciting thing and it would be wonderful if the Lord came before I got to the scripture. It would be even better, wouldn't it? But Revelation 4 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. See, that's a description of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was, he is, and praise the Lord, he is to come. But holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How clearer can you get that Jesus Christ is God, God Almighty? But not only is Jesus Christ the Holy One, not only is he holy, 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 he also describes himself as he who is true. A simple word true. The Greek word denotes that which is something that is genuine something that is authentic, something that is real. And the reality, when you really think about it, is that anything outside of Jesus Christ is not truth. You'd have to agree with that, wouldn't you? If Jesus Christ is truth, then anything outside of Jesus Christ is not genuine, it's not authentic, and it's not real. Now, we live in a world of dishonesty. We live in a world of perversion. We live in a world that error fills. But the Lord Jesus Christ, you can come back to 
every time as being the truth. John 14, 6. If you haven't learnt this as a memory verse, then you should. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus didn't say, I'm a truth. He says, I am the truth. Anything outside Jesus Christ, anything out of this word is not truth. And you can take that as truth. He who is holy, he who is true. But he's also the one that holds the key of David. The one who opens and no one will shut. The one who shuts and and no one will open. Now what's this all about? What is this key of David that the Lord has saying that he has? He has the key of David. Shouldn't we know what he has? What that key of David is? Well, this is the Old Testament feature that I mentioned earlier. Because to appreciate what this key of David is, I'd like you to turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 22. It's very interesting, very noteworthy, very wonderful to get this scripture and this truth into our hearts and you'll be blessed when we do. So turn with me to Isaiah 22. I'm not going to do a sermon on 22. In fact, I'm just going to read a few verses starting from verse 20, but it'll give you the idea of what the key of David, what the Lord is talking about here. Okay, Isaiah 22, verse 20. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him. Now, this is God speaking. I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority and he will become the father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, without going into the full study of Isaiah 22, the office of the key of David has been given or will be given to Eliakim by God. And that office is the, the steward or the prime minister to the King David. To King David. So what's the significance of this? Why does Jesus call himself the holder of the key of David? Well, the significance is that the holder of the key of David was the master of the city the city of Jerusalem. But not only that, he was the master of the palace where David obviously was. Because he was the key holder, Eliakim controlled access to David, access to the city. He controlled who had access. He controlled who would come and see the king. And the writer of Isaiah, Isaiah said, because he has the key, when he opens, no one can shut that door to the king. When he shuts that door to the king, no one is going to open that door. And that's what Eliakim's job was, as the the key holder of David. And now we come back to Revelation because the risen Lord says that he has that key, the key of David. So what is the Lord saying of himself? What is this description all about? Well, if you put the two together, you can see that he's saying... 
He alone has the sovereign authority to determine who enters the city of David. But you're saying, but that city's gone. Well, I can assure you that city is not, it may be gone in its, uh, in its physical, but the city of David will be returned. The, in fact, we read the new Jerusalem and the new, uh, new heavens will come down from God. So the city of David, the heavenly Jerusalem, that's where the throne of David will be. And Jesus Christ has the key of David. When he opens, when Jesus Christ opens, <coughs> no one's going to shut that door to the, key, to the city of David, to the heavenly Jerusalem. When he shuts that door, no one will open that door to the city of the heavenly Jerusalem. Just have a look back in chapter 1 of Revelation. In verse 18, what is Jesus revealing of himself there in 1.18? Do you all have it? If you have it in your mind, what does he hold? He holds the keys of death and Hades. So we learned back in chapter 1 that our risen Lord holds those keys, the keys of death and Hades. And now in Revelation chapter 3 verse 7, he now... Uh, reveals that he has the key to salvation and blessing. He has the key to the heavenly Jerusalem. He has the key to the throne room of King David, which from Old Testament scripture we know that King David's throne will never cease. You see, Jesus alone, Jesus alone has the sovereign authority to determine who enters his messianic kingdom. Because he has the key of David. He says, I am the way. Going back to John 14, 6. I am the way. There is no other way. I have the key. I am the truth. I am the life. He has the sovereign authority over the, the uh, heavenly Jerusalem. He has the sovereign authority over death and Hades. Our Lord is the key holder of everything. doesn't matter where people are, whether they go to, <coughs> to die without the Lord and go to the, uh, first of all, death and Hades and then into the lake of fire. Jesus Christ has the keys. He is the keeper. But what I love about this analogy of being the, holding the key of David is that not only is our Lord the keeper of the keys, I love this analogy, he is also the door. It's just beautiful to think of. John 10.9 I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and I will go, and will go in and out and find pasture. So not only does he hold the keys <coughs> to heavenly Jerusalem, he's actually the door. No one can shut the door to the kingdom. No one can open the door to the kingdom except Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. What a joy to know that. What a joy to know that our Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, holds the key not just to death and Hades but to the heavenly Jerusalem because he is the holder of the key of David. Verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, he who is holy, 
He who is true, he who has the King of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this. The Sovereign Lord of everything says this. Verse 8, I know your deeds. That's it. I know your deeds. We're so used to, I know your deeds, but... That's what we've looked at in four of the five churches already. But there's no rebuke for this church. (coughs) The Ephesian church, he starts off, or the Lord started off, I know your deeds, but I have this against you. The Pergamon church, I know you hold fast my name, I know you don't deny your faith, my faith, but I have a few things against you. The Thyatiran church, I know your deeds, but I have this against you. The Sardinian church, I know your deeds, but wake up. And here we have this church at Philadelphia, and the church of Smyrna was the other one, by the way, that never received uh, anything against them. These two of the seven are the ones that received no rebuke from the Lord of the church. In spite of the struggles, in spite of the persecution, the Christians here at Philadelphia were faithful. They were obedient. They were serving. They were worshipping the Lord. And the Lord found nothing that caused him to say, but. I've often said, as I've been going through this series, I wonder what the Lord would say if you wrote a letter to us and we've gone through the seven ch- or the six churches and we've said that the Lord is looking at us. It's not just these seven churches that he happens to write a letter to. And I thought during the week what a joy it would be if he said, I know your deeds and there was no but. And that's what the Philadelphian church was like. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Why, Lord? Why have you done that? Why have you put an open door before these people? Continuing on in verse 8, because you have a little power. Jordan has strength in there, which is a word that I think is probably a little bit better, because you have little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's why the Lord put this open door before them that no one can shut, because they have little strength, they have kept his word, they have not denied his name. We could call this church in Philadelphia the church of the open door. But what does the Lord mean? I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. And I want you to notice it's in the past tense. I have already done that. The Lord has already put an open door before them. Before we go into what that open door is, I want to first have a look at what the Lord commends this church for. I want to have a look at at, at why the open door is before them. I want to have a look at what pleased the Lord that he would put an open door before them. And the first one is the Philadelphian church had little power or little strength. 
Behold, I put, a, I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little strength. Now, I want you to understand here that this is not a negative comment, particularly when the Scripture says power. It's not a, a comment on their feebleness or even their size. In fact, in reality, it's a commendation on their strength, that they have little strength. Because this was a church that seemingly, from what we know about them, had little prestige. They were getting beat up by the local Jews, the the synagogue of Satan, who condemned them. But we're going to see, particularly in verse 9, that they had a powerful impact on this city. And because they were of little strength, they knew whose ministry the church was. They didn't try and usurp God's authority because they had little strength and they knew it. You know, I think it's a lesson for all of us who are fiercely independent people. See, we have little power, little strength. But how many times do we think we know better than God? In our personal lives, in the life of the church, this church knew they had little strength. And so because of that, They trusted in God because they had little strength, little power. And so the Lord put an open door before them because they were little strength, little of strength. But the Lord also put an open door before them because they kept Christ's word. What does it mean or what do you think the ramifications would be in keeping God's word? What do you have to know before you can keep it? God's word. You see, you can't keep something that you don't know. That makes sense, doesn't it? The truth is, if you don't know the word, if you're not in the word, if you're not immersed in it, you cannot keep it as God would want you to. Psalm 199 verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. How many of us here in this room have treasured the word of God in your heart? Treasured it that I may not sin against you. These Christians were consumed by the word. They were devoted to the Word. They were satisfied by the Word. They were thriving on the Word. And so they knew it, they understood it, they were taught it, and they kept it. (coughs) Martin Luther, who we celebrated his 500th year of of what he, uh, he, the, the... transformation Uh, he was on trial and he said just one sentence my conscience is captive to the word of God my conscience is captive to the word of God and so I ask you not a question that you need to put your hand up because God knows Is your conscience captive to the Word of God or is it captive to something else? Is your conscience captive to the Word of God? And if not, why isn't it? 
And the only reason I could come up with, I thought, was maybe because you don't know it. If you don't know it, then your mind, your conscience can't be captive to it. And so they were little strength and they kept God's word. My prayer is that you will know God's word so that you can keep it. But they were also marked by their loyalty to Christ. Here was a church, a small church, my understanding is that no matter what they faced, they refused to give up their faith. The ridicule, the peer pressure, the opposition, the possible persecution (coughs) could never make them waver. They remained loyal to the name of the Lord no matter what it cost them. They did not deny his name. Later on in Revelation chapter 12, there's a, a, there's a verse where the tribulation saints refused to take the, the mark of the beast. And if you know anything about these end times, those who did not take the mark of the beast were uh, had their heads lopped off and couldn't buy or anything. And in Revelation chapter 14 verse 12, It says, here is the perseveration of the saints, perseverance, sorry, of the saints, who keep the commandments of God and keep their faith in Jesus. Here is the perseverance of the saints, who keep the commandments of God and their, and their faith in Jesus. Now, we're not going through any trials like that. We're not persecuted as a church. I wonder how many of us still are persevering and not denying the name of the Lord. You might say, well, no, I don't think I deny the name of the Lord. What pressure are you under, though, to deny his name? Now, I know for a fact you wouldn't be under pressure in this church to deny the name of the Lord. You come here and you shout his name, you sing his name. This is a great place. You would never deny the name of the Lord in this place. It's a shame we can't meet here 24-7. We'd never have to deny the name of the Lord. But what about when you're at work? What about when you're at school? What about when you're with your relatives or at home or at play? Are you under pressure or do you deny the name of the Lord? Now you might not come out and say, I deny the Lord like uh, Peter did. Maybe you are like Peter the Apostle, where the Apostle where he said, I don't know him. Three times, I don't know him. I don't know him. <coughs> I wonder if you've done that. I would have to say probably not. But if you don't tell someone at your work or school or play that you're a Christian, then that's denying the Lord. You see, we don't just deny the Lord with our mouths, do we? We every day can and sometimes do deny the Lord with our actions. Whatever actions they may be. People will see you, whatever action is happening... And as they see you, you are denying the Lord in your life if it's an action that is not truth because Jesus is the truth. Are you denying the Lord in your actions, in your words, in your lack of words? 
I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power, a little strength and you kept my word and you have not denied my name so I put an open door before you. So I'm going to go back to my original question. What does the Lord mean? I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Is it to do with the open door and closing with the key of David in the first uh, verse? In verse 7? No, I don't believe it is. What I believe it to be, as we'll see, is that Christ's opening and closing the door is for opportunities for service and ministry in that church. We could liken it to 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul writes, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2, he says the same thing. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. So we've come across this before, the idea of a door being something that we go through for opportunity of service, certainly in Paul's case. And like Paul, the people of the Church of Philadelphia relied upon the Lord for their ministry because they were of little strength. He opened he closed. And as I said before, this church would have known that the ministry that was happening in their midst was from the Lord and they would not try to close that door because the Lord opened it. They knew if a door was open for ministry, then it was the Lord that put it there. And if the Lord put an open door, he will supply their needs. If we try to go through a closed door, then the Lord's not going to supply anything. It still might be a righteous thing. It still might be great. It still might be something that is worthwhile. But if it's not an open door there by the Lord, then he won't be able to supply because the Lord says he opens, he closes. And what I love, it says no one can interfere no one can shut that open door of opportunity that the church had. The example of an open door for service, I believe, is given by the Lord in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will cause... <coughs> Understand, this is God. This is Jesus Christ saying this. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie... I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. What a wonderful open door. I'm going to do this. Now we saw this phrase, the synagogue of Satan, back in the persecuted church at Smyrna. So I'm not going to go through it again, but it refers to a certain, uh, certain Jews in the city who claimed to be spiritual descendants of Abraham, but in actuality they were only physical descendants of Abraham. But something happened, something amazing. Our Lord causes these Jews to come and bow at the Philadelphians' feet. Not in reverence. The Lord would never allow a man to fall at the feet of another man. In fact, next, uh, as we go on in Revelation, uh, John wanted to fall at the feet of an angel and worship him. And he said, no, there's only one person that you fall before in reverence. 
I believe they fell before them in service, acknowledging God's blessing upon them. Some of these unbelieving Jews become believers and they serve the very ones they persecuted. Jesus Christ opened that door. If the door was closed, it never would have happened. And so the Lord will cause doors to be opened for ministry for each one of us, for outreach for this church. But what about our church? Are we the church of the open door? When we move, maybe we can change a new community church open door. But I have to say, of course we are. We are the church of the open door. Every day, each one of us will put, or the Lord will put before you an open door which no one can shut. Every one of us. Remember that the church is us, not the building. We're the church of the open door because every day the Lord puts before you an open door which no one can shut. But there's some ifs. If you rely on God's strength, if you know and have kept God's word, if you have not denied the name of the Lord, then I believe the Lord is going to place an open door before you in ministry and outreach. And that's what those verses are saying. The Lord placed that open door because of those ifs. The Philadelphian church, God knew their deeds and they were good. I want to ask you this morning whether you have a door of opportunity open for you. And if you have, are you making the most of that opportunity? Are you doing it in the Lord's strength? Are you keeping God's word? Are you not denying his name? I must admit that I fail so often and I let those opportunities slip. At the time, I know they're an opportunity, but I'm in a hurry. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, whatever it may be, and you regret it later on because you know that door was opened by the Lord. The Lord had opened the door, but I failed to walk through it. We need to pray for each other. We need to pray that we will be bold enough to take the opportunities that God gives us. And that just follows along with Paul's prayer. As he asked for prayer for the boldness to be able to share the gospel. I read this humorous story of a guy who prayed that prayer every morning. Lord, if you want me to witness to someone today, please give me a sign and show me who it is. It's not a bad prayer. We... Sometimes pray, Lord, bring someone into my life today. One day he found himself on a bus when a big burly man sat next to him. The bus was nearly empty, but this guy sat right next to our praying friend. The timid Christian anxiously waited for his stop so he could get out of the bus quickly. But before he could get out of the bus, the big guy burst into tears and began to weep. He then cried with a loud voice, I need to be saved. I'm a lost sinner. I need the Lord. Won't somebody tell me how to be saved? He turned to the Christian and pleaded, can you show me how to be saved? The believer immediately bowed his head and prayed, Lord, is this a sign? Is that what we're doing? Are you looking for a sign to start witnessing? Or you're allowing the Lord to open that door 
if, it's, if you know it's not your strength, if you know that you're keeping the word and you know that you're not denying the Lord, then don't. Just allow the Lord to lead you because if you're trusting in the Lord's strength, if you are immersed in the word, if you're standing for the Lord in every opportunity, he will open that door for you. And if you're saying, I don't have any opportunities, then you have to ask yourself, why not? Why don't those opportunities come to me? Well, going by the scripture, you might be lacking something. You might be lacking God's strength. You might be trying to do it all in your own. You see, he is strong. You are weak. Maybe you're lacking God's word. Maybe you're not immersing yourself in God's instructions to you. Maybe you're denying the Lord's name to those around you, not necessarily by saying, I do not know him, but by your actions, or by not even talking about him. And so the Lord promises an open door to those who are in his word, using his strength, not denying him. He also promises that the church will be kept from the hour of testing. This is verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, that's just the word steadfastness, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from, or a better translation would be out of, I will keep you from or out of the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now because the believers in Philadelphia had successfully passed many tests, because they had been steadfast to the point of the Lord having nothing to say against them, because they have little power, because they keep God's word, because they haven't denied him, Jesus promised to spare them from the hour of testing. So the big question is, what is this hour of testing? Is it a local hour of testing just for the Philadelphian church? Well, let's have a look. First, it's the, the hour of testing. It's that hour. It is very specific. Secondly, the test is yet future. I will keep you. Thirdly, the test is for a definite, limited time. Jesus described it as the hour of testing, not just 60 minutes. It's not as in minutes, that, that Greek word in, in, uh, in hour. It's a period of time. It's like back in, in Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah where he says the day of the Lord. It's not just a day, it's a period that starts and finishes. Here we have the hour of the testing. Fourthly, this test is worldwide in its scope since it will come upon the whole world. Not just the city of Philadelphia, but on the whole world. And finally, and most significantly to me, its purpose. What was its purpose? To test those who dwell on the earth. To test all people. 
I have no doubt in my mind as I look at those five points that I understand this hour of testing to be Daniel's 70th week and we find that in Daniel. I understand this hour of testing to be the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 Also for that day is great, there is none like it and it is the time of Jacob's trouble but he will be saved out of it. Talking about a time of testing. So it's Daniel's 70th week. It's the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress, meaning Israel's trouble, Israel's distress. And if we look into Revelation, which we will be, it's the seven-year tribulation period yet to come. And that's found in Revelation. You see, the fact is the sweeping nature of this promise extends far beyond this Philadelphian congregation. It encompasses all faithful churches throughout history. And the promise to all born-again believers is uniquely that we are to be kept out of the hour of trial. To me, this is one of the clearest promises in the Bible of the catching away of the church before the great tribulation begins. It's a promise of the departure of the church which Paul so vividly describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You might like to turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. But while you're doing that, some, of, some may say but the Philadelphians were promised specifically to be kept out of the hour of testing. That's what God promised them. It hasn't come yet. Where is this hour of testing? You look back through history in the first century, there was no worldwide testing. There was nothing that affected the whole world that was an hour of testing. It never happened to them. So what's the point of the promise given to the church at Philadelphia? And I say, yes, they were kept from the hour of testing course they died if you're there with me in Revelation I sorry Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 in in first Thessalonians the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God who comes first the dead in Christ shall rise first those Philadelphian Christians they never saw the hour of testing They died. And they're the first ones that are taken up to be with the Lord. The Lord himself descends from heaven with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. No time of testing. If we die in Christ before the tribulation comes, before the Lord comes, then we will be the first up to meet the Lord. This is an awesome promise that we have received from Paul in Thessalonians. It's such an awesome promise that verse 18 says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. They're words of comfort. 
Not words of distress, they're comfort for us to know that the the dead in Christ, including the Philadelphian church, will be the first to be with the Lord. What an awesome promise. I wonder how much comfort we give to people with those words that the Lord will descend from heaven. And if we're alive, then we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we shall ever be with the Lord. And if that's not convincing enough for you, the Lord says at the beginning of verse 11, which really should be at the end of verse 10, I am coming quickly. This hour of trial, I am coming quickly to take you out of it. Now, quickly depicts not speed, but imminency of Christ coming for his church. To be imminent means that it can happen at any time. Quickly does not relate to time in, this, in the Greek. It is relating to imminence. And every believer's response should be, Amen, come Lord Jesus. I am coming quickly. I am coming imminently. In fact, if you look through the whole of Scripture, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that has to happen on the timetable for the Lord to return. Everything is in place except the timing. Now, at a future time, I'm going to spend a whole sermon on the rapture of the church. And I'll probably do that after these churches and maybe before chapter 4, we'll see. But for now, we have to move on because the Lord is is coming imminently for his church. The Lord gives us a command in verse 11. I'm coming imminently. And so hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. The members of the Philadelphian church had been faithful, they had been loyal, they had not denied the name of the Lord, they kept his word, and now he commands them, remain so. Hold fast, cling to it. Cling to it like you're holding on for your dear life. And of course, this is for us as well. Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to the truth that you know through the Scriptures. Hold fast and no one will take your crown. Now please understand that this is not a reference to the possible loss of salvation if you don't hold fast. You see, born-again believers are eternally secure because of the power of God. Amen? not because of our power to hold fast to what we have. How many, of you be, would be, how many of you would be saved if you were holding on to the power to be saved? Zero. You would not be able to do it. Born-again believers are eternally secure because of the power of God. What the Lord has begun in me, he will continue it until the, until the end. And it's not because of my power to hold fast to what I have, it's because of God's power to hold fast to me. 
And what the Lord is talking about here is the loss of crowns as rewards. There are many crowns to be as rewards through the Scriptures. The good thing is we don't keep them. We throw them at our Lord's feet where they belong. We can't lose our salvation, but we can lose our rewards. 2 John 8 says this. It says the same thing. 2 John 8. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Jesus says, hold fast to what you have so that you may receive a full reward. Cling on with all your might. Don't let anyone take your rewards off you. Don't let anyone take that crown off you. The crown of loving the Lord. The crown of waiting for His return. Watch yourselves. That you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. And as the risen Lord concludes His letter to the faithful church of Philadelphia... He now promises four eternal blessings. Four blessings in eternity for us to the one who overcomes. Now I'm not going to go through this again. I've gone through it several times. But 1 John 5, 5, if you want to jot that down, if you haven't heard it before, talks about he who overcomes. And it is born again believers. It's another name for born again believers. He who overcomes in verse 12 He who is a born-again believer, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. This is a promise, a promise that the Lord will honour us. What is a pillar? It represents stability and permanence and immovability. Even to the point that whenever you see ruins, it's usually the only thing standing is a pillar. And he's going to make us that pillar in the temple of of God. We'll be part of the heavenly city that nothing can destroy. And the promise that they will go out no more must be understood as security in eternal glory. Then Jesus promises us as born again believers, I will write on him the name of my God. This depicts ownership. What do you do when you own something? Normally you write your name on it. It signifies that all true believers belong to God because you will have his name written on you. Don't worry about tattoos on this earth. They're probably rotten. But the tattoos that God gives me, they'll be there permanently. And he'll write his name on me. But not only is it talk of ownership, It talks of an intimate personal relationship that we will have him forever. His name will be on me. And then I get another promise. Not only will I have the name of my God, the name of the city of my God will be on me. The new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. Another promise that we have, that born again believers will now have eternal citizenship in heaven's capital city, the new Jerusalem. So I'll have God's name. I'll have the city name. I'm a citizen. We're going to see that in more detail in Revelation 21 if the Lord tarries. 
But for now, understand that this is yet another promise of security and safety and glory that we have as born-again believers because it's been promised to us, to overcomers. Then we have a fourth promise. I will also write on him my new name. Jesus Christ is going to have a new name. What is that name? We don't know. In Revelation 19.12, you might just quickly go over there, we're told that when Jesus appears, he's going to have a new name written upon him. But it's a name that no one knows. Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, an angel appeared to Joseph and he told Mary to bring, that he, she would bring forth a son and she, he even told Mary what name. You shall call his name Jesus. Now that's just not a name out of a hat. They didn't go to a name book and see which was a good name book. They called him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the redemptive name of our Lord. It means Yahweh saves. But when that work of redemption is completed, when that work of redemption is finished and us born again believers are in the new Jerusalem, we'll be at home in glory with him, God's work of saving and redemption will be over, Jesus won't need that name anymore. Jesus will be given a new name. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says that he'll be giving, given a name above every name. We still don't know what it is though. No one knows what it is, but what we are promised is that we will share in that name. Whatever that name that it goes upon us, we will share in the work that Christ will be doing in the millennial kingdom. We will share that work with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth because we have that new name written on us. Are you excited? Are you excited at the prospect of having the name of God etched in your skin, the name of the new city? You'll be a citizenship. Well, you're already a citizen, but you haven't got it tattooed on you. And you'll have Christ's new name, whatever that may be. It's exciting. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear this morning? And it doesn't mean just the fact that we've got two of them. Did we hear what the Spirit said to this church in Philadelphia? Did we take it on board? Did we get excited? Did we search our own hearts and wonder, am I doing things in my own strength? Do I keep the Word of God? Do I even know it to keep it? Do I deny the name of the Lord by my actions, by my lack of speech? Maybe you do say, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. If you have an ear then hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In a very real sense, our church is like the Philadelphian church. The Lord will bless us with open doors for ministry 
if we remain faithful to his word and not deny his name. And I praise God that that's exactly what happens in this, in this church. We remain faithful to the word and we will never, ever deny his name. And as born-again believers, we have deliverance from that great time of testing that will come upon the earth. He will keep us out of it. And the Lord will ultimately bring all those who persevere in their faith to eternal bliss in heaven with lots of names written all over you. And the promise of those rich blessings should motivate every church. It should motivate every Christian to follow the example of the Philadelphian church, the example of faithfulness. But above all, as I leave this morning, we must be faithful to him and see the opportunities and not the obstacles that come in our way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who in this letter to the Philadelphians has shown himself to be sovereign in all things, in salvation, in death, in Hades, in the New Jerusalem. We are so thankful that we are in the hands of your Son, but Father, we really do need to search our hearts. We really do need to say, see if we're doing everything in our own strength. That Father, do we know the word? Do we know enough of it to keep it? Lord, at work or at school, are we denying the Lord in our actions, in what we say, what we don't say? Lord, only you know this to a certain degree. I thank you, Lord, that your scripture has given me the courage to know that I will be kept out of the hour of testing, whether I die and go to be with you and be raised up on that day, or whether it happens while we're still alive to be kept from it. What a wonderful promise. Thank you for the promise of the knowledge that we are owned by God that we're citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem and that, Father, we will have your son's new name. We look forward to that new name. We look forward to what it means for us. Something, Lord, to look forward to among everything else. We ask your blessing upon this word and we ask, Father, that by your spirit you would take it and use it for your glory. Because we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.